Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Conducting any type of criminal investigation, identifying similar incidents that occurred within a reasonable area and time is a critical first step. In fact, it's textbook. Literally. The problem with the Melgar case is that no one from the Harris County Sheriff's Department seems to have even considered the possibility that this was a property crime that resulted in a murder, as opposed to a premeditated attack on Jim Melgar. Had Detectives Carazal and Doucet or Maurice Carpenter for that matter, entered into this investigation without blinders on and considered more than just their initial theory throughout their investigation, we may very well have ended up with an entirely different result. Every criminal investigation textbook that I've ever read says the same thing when it comes to property crimes. Step one, secure and process the crime scene. Step two, interview any and all potential witnesses. And step three, determine if the crime is similar in MO to any other incidents within geographical proximity. It's that third step that was ignored by these investigators. An inaction that I believe put an innocent woman behind bars and left a killer walking free. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Detective Sean Carazal focused in on Sandy from the very beginning. He developed a theory very early on in the investigation with no evidence to support it and he married himself to that theory and refused to consider that there may be a different solution. 
Corazal assumed that Sandy Melgar killed her husband. He never took the idea seriously that this may have been a home invasion gone wrong. If he had, he would have done more than leave a business card on Randy's door. The man that I'm referring to as Randy was identified at the crime scene by news reporters and was acting strangely. After pulling up his arrest records, Corazal knew that he had a long history of similar crimes on his rap sheet. Any objective investigator would have at least made the effort to interview him. But for Corazal, he was just a box to check off of a list. Since Carazal never seriously considered the idea that this may have begun as a property crime, he didn't look for other crimes in his district with a similar M.O. And let me tell you why that was a huge mistake. What do we know about the Melgar case that might connect it to Sinead Gonzalez, the woman who was arrested in the Kingwood home invasion? The homes and neighborhoods are eerily similar. The attacks occurred while the residents were home and awake. There were no signs of forced entry in either incident. The intruders tied up their victims with items from their own homes. The husband was separated from the rest of the family in both cases, and the burglars were after safes. Only small electronics, jewelry, and medications were stolen, and in both cases, the intruders used backpacks belonging to the residents to remove the stolen items. Not to mention the fact that both crimes occurred about the same time of day. This information alone should have been enough to trigger a closer look into the Kingwood case. Now, that's not to say that Cindy Ed should have been arrested and charged with Jim's murder, but obtaining her DNA for comparison to the Melgar case certainly would have been warranted. But of course, that wasn't done. And now, let me circle back to Maurice Carpenter for a minute. We've already identified a lot of things that we can see in Carpenter's crime scene photos that were never collected as evidence or even documented in his report. His tunnel vision investigation of the crime scene may be even more devastating than Carazal's overall investigation. There is a considerable amount of evidence that there may have been a woman involved in Jim's murder. The most glaring and obvious indication would, of course, be the size medium woman's shirt that was found in the jacuzzi tub. Then, of course, we have the fact that Sandy remembers seeing a Hispanic female standing in the bathroom as she was being tied up in the closet. But that's not all. Carpenter took a few photographs of some pretty incredibly important evidence that he didn't collect for testing. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Carpenter took a photo of the coax cable from the homemade antenna in the master bedroom, but didn't collect the cable. This was a huge miss because there could be touch DNA present on the connector. But he also took some photos that clearly indicate that someone other than Jim and Sandy were in the house that night. In several of the crime scene photos from the closet, there is a very visible long black hair clinging to a tan shirt sleeve directly above Jim's head. Sandy has blonde hair and Jim has short hair. It should have been painfully obvious to Carpenter that this hair was significant. This wasn't a random hair found somewhere in the house where Marissa or Monica might have shed it. This was inside the closet, in the back of the closet, right above Jim's head. And that wasn't the only one. When the crime scene techs rolled Jim into a prone position to photograph his back, we see another long black hair. And this one is stuck to his body. And this hair was also not tested for DNA. So we have some clear indications that there may very well have been a Hispanic female involved in Jim's murder. If you add up Sandy's memory of seeing a Hispanic woman and the shirt in the tub, as well as the two long black hairs in the closet, 
and then considered the similarities and MOs of this case and where Cindy Ann Gonzalez was caught with a stolen iPad red-handed, she absolutely at least warrants a closer look. There was a minimum of six people involved in the Kingwood home invasion. Isabel remembers there being at least four people inside the house, and there were two getaway drivers, one in the black SUV, who transported the four people from inside, and Siniad, who was driving the black BMW. Siniad's story is both interesting and confusing. To begin with, you'll remember that Isabel told me that Siniad refused to snitch on any of her cohorts in the Kingwood case. As far as she knew, Oscar Garcia, who I'll get to shortly, was caught solely on her son's identification of him in a police lineup. Well, as it turns out, that's not true. As I mentioned on this week's follow-up, Cinead is listed as a prosecution witness in Oscar's case file, which, as I stated, is a pretty good indication that she was willing and prepared to testify against him at trial. But since that recording, I've done a little more research, and I can now confirm that Cinead did indeed flip on Garcia, presumably in exchange for a plea deal. But as I dug a little deeper, there's even more to this story. The story is complex, and there are still some holes in it, so let me break it in half. I'll start with Cinead Gonzalez. I've been told by several sources, including Isabel, that Cinead was deported after she pled guilty and was convicted on May 6 of 2013. However, I have not found any concrete documentation to support that. There was an immigration detainer put on Gonzalez by ICE on May 8 of 2013, two days after her conviction. I didn't know exactly how these detainers work, so I looked it up. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, will send an immigration detainer to a law enforcement agency when they identify that a deportable individual is incarcerated, either in a jail or prison. So first of all, I think it's safe to assume that Cinead was in fact deportable, but that could be for any number of reasons. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with ICE requesting the details of this case. Hopefully I'll hear back soon so I can fill in some of these blanks. But honestly, after talking to Robbie Ashaudry last night, who works in immigration, I'm not real confident that we're going to get anything back. But what I do know is that in March of 2010, Cindy had married an American citizen. As Isabel put it, a white guy named Neil. If she followed the proper steps, that could have granted her citizenship after a period of time. However, that would not entirely protect her from deportation. First of all, she would have had to have applied for a visa to begin with. That may or may not have been done, I don't know. And even if she was granted citizenship, that can still be revoked due to the commission of a felony. So either way, based on what I've read, Cynthia Gonzalez was eligible to be deported when she was convicted in 2013. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
a laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The way a detainer works is ICE requests that whoever is incarcerating the deportable individual hold the person in custody for 48 business hours after their scheduled release. ICE agents then have those 48 hours to take the person into custody for deportation. If ICE does not show up within those 48 hours, the jail or prison is supposed to release the individual. What I don't know is if Siniad was ever actually deported. What I do know is that she was in a Texas prison two years later when Oscar Garcia was about to go to trial. This week, a few listeners sent me images of what appeared to be a 2015 arrest for Siniad. I did a little more digging and discovered that she was not arrested in 2015. On April 14th of that year, the Houston DA's office issued a bench warrant for Siniad to be brought from the Murray unit in TDCJ back to the county jail in Harris County to testify against Oscar Garcia. Based on the available documentation, I can definitely say that Siniad was not deported after her conviction. However, the day that she was transported back to Harris County, ICE put another immigration detainer on her. All I can see from the records is that the detainer was lifted with Harris County on June 11th. By that time, I believe she was either back in the custody of TDCJ or she had been deported. I won't know which until I receive the productions from either my open records request with Harris County or the FOIA request with ICE. But according to Rabia, deportation does not take precedence over an American criminal sentence. Meaning, if someone is convicted of a crime here in America and they're going to be deported, they're supposed to first carry out their full sentence and then once they're released, that's when they will get deported. And if Cindy had served her five years, she would have been released from prison in 2017. So what do we know about Siniad? Not much, really. She doesn't have a long criminal record, at least not in Harris County. In their database, she only has one prior charge. She was charged with disorderly conduct and evading arrest in 2007, and that's it until her arrest in 2012 for the Kingwood home invasion. So let's talk about that. We know that Siniad was arrested on the day of the home invasion when the victims tracked her down using the Find My Phone feature on their iPad. She bonded out of the Harris County Jail on May 20th of 2012. At that point, she hadn't given up any of the other people connected to the case. About a year later, in May of 2013, Siniad entered into a plea agreement that dropped her charge to a second-degree felony and sentenced her to only five years in prison. This is the language from her original charging document. Quote, Before me, the undersigned district attorney of Harris County, Texas, this day appeared the undersigned affiant, who under oath says that he has good reason to believe and does believe that in Harris County, Texas, Siniad Vanessa Gonzalez, hereafter styled the defendant, heretofore on or about February 26, 2011, did then and there unlawfully while in the course of committing theft of property owned by and with intent to obtain and maintain control of the property, intentionally and knowingly threaten and place in fear of imminent bodily injury and death, 
and the defendant did then and there use and exhibit a deadly weapon, namely a firearm. The charge at this point was aggravated robbery, which carries a punishment range of 5 to 99 years in prison. Once the charge was dropped down to a second-degree felony a year later, the punishment range was dropped to 2 to 20 years. It would appear that Sinead's deal was put in place in exchange for her testimony against Oscar Garcia, since he was also charged in the home invasion in May of 2013. But Oscar Garcia is an entirely different type of story. Let's start at the end and circle our way back to the beginning of Oscar's story. On April 20th, 2015, two years after Sinead's conviction, Garcia pled guilty to aggravated robbery in exchange for an eight-year prison sentence. The first question that I asked myself was, why did Oscar plead guilty? He was maintaining his innocence for two years and seemed to be prepared to battle the charges out at trial. And then all of a sudden, on the day the trial was scheduled to begin, he pleads guilty. Why? Well, for starters, Oscar was facing a 99-year prison sentence. Eight years guaranteed is a lot less of a risk than potentially spending the rest of your life in prison. But Oscar already knew that. I think the trigger to accept the plea deal was Sinead. Given what we already know about how Harris County operates, I don't think we can just assume that Oscar Garcia is guilty just because he took the plea deal. Now, he does have a prior criminal record, but those charges leave us with some unanswered questions as well. In 2009, Garcia was charged in another home invasion in Harris County, but those charges ended up being dismissed by the prosecutor. And at this point, I have no explanation as to why. The dismissal document lists the reason for dismissal as other and then quote, see state's file. I've requested that file in an open records request, so hopefully we'll have that answer soon. Let me read to you the charging document from Garcia's 2009 charge. You'll notice two things. Number one, this case is going to sound very familiar. I'd almost go so far as to say that this home invasion must have been the same crew that broke into Isabel's home in Kingwood three years later. But the other thing that you're going to notice is that this sure seems like a cut-and-dry case against Garcia, at least from this document, from the report. The affiant, V. Cook, is a peace officer with the Harris County Sheriff's Office. The affiant has reason to believe and does believe that on or about May 3, 2009, defendant Oscar Josue Garcia committed the offense of aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon at Houston, Harris County, Texas. The affiant's belief is based on the following facts. The affiant spoke with complainant, who advised that six unidentified young Hispanic males armed with handguns approached her and her neighbors while they were sitting in her driveway, which is located at... The complaint stated that the suspects wore masks that partially covered their faces. The complainant advised that the suspect forced all of them to go inside. The complainant advised that the suspects were talking in Spanish to a male on a radio or walkie-talkie. The complainant stated that the male told the suspects to beat them up to make them give up their money and valuables. The complainant stated that she was kicked in the face and her jewelry was stolen during the robbery. The affiant spoke with witness who advised that she observed one of the suspects exiting the back seat behind the driver's seat of a black SUV that was parked near the complainant's driveway. Witness stated that she heard someone warn the suspects over the radio that the police were coming. Witness 
advised that they ran outside from the front of the house while the suspects fled to the back of the house. Witness stated that as they ran out screaming for help, the black SUV drove off. Another witness advised that she observed the black SUV, possibly an Explorer expedition, parked in front of the complainant's home during the robbery. Witness stated that she did not recognize the SUV and provided this information to the 911 operator. Deputy Jay Alanis advised that he observed the Black Ford Expedition traveling south on Imperial Valley from Remington Heights while responding to the home invasion in progress. Deputy Alanis reported that the license plate was partially covered by a rag. The defendant was detained for investigative purposes and brought to the Will Clayton substation. The vehicle was inventoried before being towed. A camouflage mask was found in the vehicle along with five gloves. The defendant was giving his statutory warning in Spanish by Deputy Jay Garcia. Sound familiar? Who also translated during the interview. The defendant waived his rights and agreed to provide an audio statement. In his statement, the defendant admitted to being on the street of the robbery at the time the robbery occurred. The defendant stated that he saw the complainants in the driveway and advised that it appeared they were having a party. The defendant stated that he later saw people running from the house where the party was happening. The defendant denied any involvement in the home invasion, but advised that he did see five Hispanic males walking towards the party, but described them as 20 to 25 years of age. The complainants described the suspects as teenage Hispanic males wearing common clothing, long blue jean shorts, white shirts, and white beater style tank tops. The complainant described the mask that the suspects wore as black, brown, and military green that goes over the head and black bandanas. The complainant advised that the suspects wore gloves and described them as brown military style and dark brown. Later that day, the affiant went back to the scene and recovered a Glock Model 23, a mesh camouflage mask, one brown glove, and one pair of white and gray socks. One sock and one glove were found entangled in a barbed wire fence located directly behind the complainant's residence. The Glock, mask, and a second sock were found in the thick brush behind the complainant's residence. The mask found in the defendant's car is similar to the ones that the suspects wore and the one that was found in the woods. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. First of all, there are some striking similarities in this case and the Kingwood home invasion. A group of young Hispanic males with guns, talking on walkie-talkies to their getaway driver, who came to their aid in a black SUV. And Oscar's involvement seems to be fairly obvious. He was caught driving a black SUV away from the scene with a license plate that was covered, 
and he admitted to being in the area, and the police found a mask and gloves in his car. The question is, why would the prosecutor drop the charges? That's more evidence than Harris County ever had on Sandy. So how did Oscar escape prosecution? As I said before, I don't have the answer to that question, but hopefully I will soon. We do know that Oscar's DNA was obtained in 2010 to compare against items recovered from the crime scene as well as from inside of his car. And what we don't see in the charging document is a walkie-talkie found in Garcia's SUV. If he was the person on the other end of the radio, then where's the radio? Whatever the reason was, I don't know. But the district attorney's office did dismiss the charges against Oscar Garcia on Valentine's Day in 2011. And based on what I'm about to tell you next, I'm wondering if Oscar didn't give up some names in exchange for his freedom. And maybe he made some enemies in the process. Sinead Gonzalez gave the police Oscar's name just before her conviction in 2013. But why him? And more to the point, why only him? There were at least five people involved in the Kingwood case besides Sinead. Why would she choose to flip on only one of them? One would think that she would be concerned that he might give up the names of the rest of the crew in exchange for a deal, just like she did. If he knows who the other four men actually were. And really, whether you flip on one person or five people, a snitch is a snitch. And I would think that there would be consequences for such an act. So what I'm wondering is, was Oscar Garcia actually involved in the Kingwood case, or was he just a patsy? This is the charging document that led to Oscar's arrest in 2013 in the Kingwood case. Your affiant, J.J. Breeden, is a certified peace officer with the Houston Police Department. Your affiant does believe that Oscar Garcia, hereafter referred to as defendant, did intentionally and knowingly commit the offense of aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon on February 26, 2012 at in Harris County, Texas. Your affiant bases his beliefs on the following. Affian spoke to Isabel's husband, Isabel, and her two sons, here and after referred to as complainants, all credible and reliable people. Isabel's husband stated that he owns a limousine business and was coming home on the night of February 26, located at in Kingwood, Harris County, Texas. He stated that he was walking into the house, he was approached by four Hispanic males with handguns who then demanded that he walk into the house where the rest of his family was inside. The complainant stated that the suspects, including the defendant, terrorized them in the house for two hours by assaulting them and threatening to kill them if they did not give them $50,000. A tip was received naming the defendant as one of the participants in the robbery. Your affiant organized a photo array, which contained the defendant's photograph from a Houston police booking photo, and make sure you pay attention to this part, and the photographs of five other males with similar characteristics. Your affiant presented the photo array to the complainant's son, who positively identified the defendant as the person who threatened to kill his family, while holding a handgun and then stole several items from within the house, including an iPad. The photo of defendant Oscar Garcia was also presented to co-defendant Sinead Gonzalez, who had already been charged in the case as the getaway driver. Sinead Gonzalez identified defendant Oscar Garcia as the male who called her on the night of the robbery and requested a ride. In addition to that, co-defendant Sinead Gonzalez stated that the defendant, Oscar Garcia, placed an iPad belonging to the complainants in her vehicle, which was how she was tracked and ultimately charged in the case. 
So according to this probable cause document, Isabel's 13-year-old son was shown a photo array of Oscar and five other males with, quote, similar characteristics and identified Garcia as one of the home invaders. Oscar became a suspect to begin with because of a tip, and I can only assume that Siniad was the mystery tipster, since she was the only witness on the prosecution's list for trial. Even the victims were not on the witness list. The nail in the coffin for Garcia was Siniad's statement to police, although her version of events does not add up with what Isabel told me. According to Isabel, Siniad was on the other end of the walkie-talkie throughout the two hours that the intruders were in the house. At the very end, Siniad actually came inside the house and was barking orders at the rest of the crew. But according to Siniad's own statement, she was just minding her own business when Oscar called her for a ride. And when she showed up, he put the iPad into her car. I wonder if the officer who took Gonzalez's statement asked her, if Oscar called you for a ride, then why wasn't he in the car with you? Surely he didn't want you to drive to the crime scene just to carry out an iPad. So in May of 2013, Sinead hands Oscar over to police, accepts a plea deal, and heads off to prison. At that point, Garcia is charged in the home invasion, and we have a two-year wait before trial. Then on March 30th of 2015, the DA's office sends out a bench warrant to TDCJ for Siniad to be transported back to Harris County for Garcia's trial, which was scheduled to begin on April 20th. At this point, Oscar is still planning to fight for his freedom in front of a jury. But based on the records, it appears that the day before Siniad actually arrived in Harris County, the assistant district attorney working Oscar's case turned over his Brady materials to Garcia's defense. As a quick refresher, in all criminal cases, the prosecution is required by federal law to turn over all exculpatory evidence to the defense during discovery. This is based on the Brady v. Maryland precedent. Failure to do so is what you've heard me refer to many times as a Brady violation. Brady violations are very important in post-conviction work because proof that one exists will almost always result in the defendant's conviction being overturned. What I'm about to tell you next has been the greatest personal and ethical struggle that I've faced since I began this podcast. When I discovered what I'm about to share with you, I was gobsmacked, and I debated for days about whether or not to broadcast my findings. But ultimately, I decided that our mission is clear, truth and justice. On April 15, 2015, Harris County Assistant District Attorney Andrea Mosley turned over all of her Brady materials to Oscar Garcia's defense. The Brady production consisted of a single document, and this is what it says. Comes now the state of Texas, by and through the undersigned Assistant District Attorney, and gives notice of information obtained by the state that requires disclosure under Brady v. Maryland in the above-styled cause and would show the following. The defendant was identified in a six-photo lineup by Isabel's 13-year-old son. Her son describes his identification of the defendant's photo as a process of elimination. He eliminated two of the photos because they didn't look Hispanic. He eliminated two of the photos because they looked too heavy. He says that he selected the defendant's photo because he looked most like the suspects and the shirt the defendant was wearing in the photo looked like the clothing that the suspects wore during the robbery. 
He says that he would have been more certain of the identification of the suspect three years ago when the offense occurred than he is now. Mosley isn't wrong in her first sentence. This information absolutely did require disclosure because it cuts very much against the statements in the original charging document. In order to prove probable cause, the Harris County Sheriff that filed the original affidavit stated that Isabel's son was shown a photo array that included five individuals with, quote, similar characteristics to Oscar Garcia. But according to this Brady document, two of the people in the lineup weren't Hispanic and two were very much heavier than Garcia. So I'm not sure what the similar characteristics were. And furthermore, the home invaders were all wearing masks the entire time. Essentially, the boy identified Garcia as the most likely suspect as compared to the other five in the lineup and by the clothes he was wearing in a photo that was taken three years before the robbery. But really, none of that mattered because the state wasn't going to call the boy to testify anyway according to their witness list. They didn't need to because they had Cinead. So five days before trial, Oscar's defense learns that Isabel's son did identify him in a lineup, but it wasn't exactly a positive ID. But on that same day, Cinead arrives at the county to testify against him. Given the witness list that shows the prosecution isn't planning to put the boy on the stand, the fact that Cinead is prepared to tell a jury that Oscar called her to the scene of the home invasion, Garcia opts to plea out to eight years rather than to risk 99. But here's the problem and my dilemma. The state left something out of their discovery in order to corner Oscar into taking the plea deal at least according to the documents on the district clerk's website. Remember what I told you last week? When I spoke to Isabel, she told me that it wasn't only her son who looked at the police lineup. Isabel herself, as well as her husband, also viewed the lineup, and in her words, they both, quote, picked the wrong man. That is absolutely Brady material. No question about it. It's clearly exculpatory, and I believe 100% material. Oscar Garcia may very well not have agreed to the plea deal if he had any idea that two of the victims identified another person. That, coupled with the fact that the 13-year-old's identification was weak at best, may have given him a fighting chance at trial. There were plenty of avenues available to attack Siniad's credibility, but when all they were dealing with was one positive ID and a co-defendant's testimony, the odds were stacked against him. I don't know anything about Oscar Garcia. He may be a great guy who got caught up in a web of corruption, or he may be a brutal home invader who's sitting right where he belongs. I just don't know. But I do know the words of Kenny Snow, right is right and wrong is wrong. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. 
All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only in Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.